0: You're listening to a Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If
1: you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't i on the Savage podcast.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to the Savage Lovecast. I'm Dan Savage, and this of course is the once a week out loud version of my sex advice column, Savage Love. Uh, Before we get to your calls and their legion, I wanted to alert all the straight people out there. I've ranted and raved about this uh, frequently, but it needs to be emphasized over and over and over again. The same people who want to deprive uh, all the homos in the world, all the little homos, of their civil rights... You know, a lot of straight people stand by, watch that happen, think, ah, too bad, uh, doesn't really affect me, not really going to give it too much of a shit. Uh, straight people need to know that the same people who want to oppress the homos are also coming for the heteros, and they have a longer list, uh, as I've said of the Pope, they have a longer list of restrictions and no's for the straight people than they do for the gay people. Their no's for the gay people are just don't, period, end of discussion, don't, you don't exist, uh, go back in the closet, get out of here. Their list of no's to straight people much longer. You know, you can't get an abortion. You know, they they want to make it harder to get a divorce if you decide you want to get a divorce. Um, And increasingly, the same people who've made uh, abortion harder to get, harder to come by, and more contentious in the United States than it is anywhere else in the Western world are coming after birth control. They want to redefine birth control. As abortion. And, uh, they're having a little protest rally on June 7th, part of the escalating campaign against birth control. These are the same people who scream and yell that they want to bring the abortion rate down because abortion is murder. And one of the quickest ways to make sure that a woman doesn't need to have an abortion is to make sure she has access to effective birth control. But, you know, setting that aside, uh, as they will, they're going after birth control. They want to prevent people from getting birth control by redefining birth control as Abortion. They're having a rally uh, called uh, The Pill Kills, The Pill Kills Babies um, uh, on June 7th, which marks the 43rd anniversary of the US Supreme Court decision in Griswold versus Connecticut, which of course legalized uh, birth control. The most hilarious thing about this website, The Pill Kills, is. Uh, they say uh, that these Estelle Griswold, who is a hero. I wrote an op-ed about her for the New York Times. You should Google that and read it. Uh, she was a director of Planned Parenthood in Connecticut, and uh, she started giving out birth control in the United States in Connecticut, even though it was illegal to do so in Connecticut. Um, and the pill kills idiots, right? They were arrested, uh, Estelle Griswold, and fined for selling birth control pills, which was illegal in Connecticut. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Planned Parenthood was breaking the law. Yet it turned this case into a legal precedent for selling contraception. Yes, they were breaking an unjust law, uh, were arrested um, for their civil disobedience and pursued it through the Supreme Court. You know, Just like other folks have done uh, with unjust laws, including uh, Mr. and Mrs. Loving of uh, Loving versus Virginia, who broke the law by getting married to each other, even though she was black and he was white, uh, and took it all the way to the Supreme Court, even though they were breaking the law and ultimately were vindicated. Uh, and now, uh, people of mixed races can get married in the United States, even though it's against the law. Anyway, the pill kill weirdos are coming for your birth control, my heterosexual listeners. You need to get into the trenches and oppose the enemies of choice, of sexual freedom, of sexual self determination, uh, because they just don't want to control where I put my dick. They want to control where you put yours, or where you put your ovaries, or when you decide you're going to have children, or how many children that you're going to have. They are coming for you too all right we got tons of calls uh rant over we're gonna get to your calls in just a minute but first this this podcast is brought to you by audible.com the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today log on to audiblepodcast.com slash savage for the details
3: hi dan my problem is that once again i found myself with a good catch who does not fulfill my particular physical preferences I am a serial monogamist who's also a good catch, but all the same when it comes to women. I have crappy self-esteem, and I'm just so ecstatic when someone who is relatively cool and cute shows interest in me that I go for broke. Until some time passes, and my love haze goggles come off, and I realize that once again I got somebody emotionally invested in me, and I just can't shake those physical preferences or type, and that type is... A woman of a particular build. In my past, whenever I've actually been with somebody of that build, the sex has just been totally on a whole different plane. Like the experience is tapping into some deep, primal, psychological part of me. Sex with anyone else just doesn't match up. I'm just so spelled down by them physically that I go crazy and make just that much more of a passionate effort because of how turned on I am. Um, even when I see somebody on the street that fits this type, I have a really intense reaction. I've heard something about imprinting on a type during puberty, so I wonder if this has something to do with the intensity. Um, and it's worth noting that I've only been with one woman of this type briefly um, over the last 10 or 11 years, and I feel long overdue. So anyway, here I am again in this situation, except I really like this girl. The companionship is damned good, and there's a lot of balance everywhere, but in the bedroom, the sex is not that great. Not only is she not my type, but she's really uncoordinated and the sex is awkward and it's really hard for her to get me off during intercourse. I'm not sold on leaving her over this because some higher part of me insists that it's not all supposed to be about sex and that I've been dealt a good card in her, but I'm worried about snapping and seeking some discreet relief. I don't want to flat out tell her that her chemistry is off or that, as it turns out, she's not my type, but I can't think of any tactful way to approach her without just devastating her. To make things more complicated, her life is kind of a train wreck right now, and she battles depression, and I've kind of turned into her lifeline for sanity, and that worries me a lot. So any suggestions? Um, Am I supposed to just ignore her depression and situation and just tell her how I feel? If I want to be honest with her, what's the least damaging language one uses to tell the other person these things without giving her a complex for the rest of her life? I, I love her. I want her in my life, but I don't want to devastate her, and I don't want to waste her time. But again, I don't want to totally screw something up for the wrong reasons. Am I a jackass? Do I need a shrink? Please
2: help. You don't want to devastate her or waste her time. That's charming. That's very considerate. It's also way too late for that. She's going to be devastated, and you have, in fact, wasted her time. Uh, if you are self-aware, you are very articulate, uh, you know something about yourself sexually, uh, that is uh, kind of crucial. That there's only one type that does it for you. There's only one uh, particular body type. You don't mention what that body type is. I hope it's not three arms or blue skin or anything impossible to come by, but – or come on. Uh, you know that. And so you really have a responsibility not to mislead people by entering into relationships with them that they are not um, – qualified, uh, you know, they're not qualified to meet your needs. You are setting them up for failure. You're, se- it's a little cruel, frankly, uh, and a little jackassy. You're setting them up for failure and devastation and time wasting because you know, uh, something by yourself. You should only go after that type. You say you're a little insecure, uh, and therefore, like some insecure people, you're actually going after someone, uh, it- it's not, It's not unconscious what you've done. A lot of people who are insecure about – or insecure around uh, or insecure about their own attractiveness or insecure around the people that they're actually attracted to will intentionally, consciously or subconsciously, go after partners that they feel superior to, that they don't feel like there's a lot at risk, that they don't feel any risk of rejection. They go after people who are in a much uh, different, usually lower uh, league uh, than they're playing in. So what do you do now? How do you extricate yourself from this? Well, you know, the fact that she's depressed and has become reliant on you, I hate to say this. You kind of need to set that aside. Uh, a relationship is not a therapy session um, and you're allowed to leave someone even if they're depressed. You need you know, be conscious of how you leave them and leave them in the least cruel way possible and make sure they have a good support system around you – around them. Uh, when you do decide to pull the trigger and end it, you don't need to disclose – exactly why you're leaving you don't need to say oh uh psych not attracted to you you just need to say it's not working out i'm sorry it's over. And, you know, then you rely on the cliches. It's not you. It's me, which is true in this case. Um, and you don't roll out all, every single real reason because you don't want to destroy that person's self-esteem and make them incapable of ever trusting men ever, 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 ever again. And then you need to look for the women you're actually attracted to and no more fucking bullshit excuses that you don't realize that the women that you're getting involved with aren't this. You know, uh, type that is the only people who float your boat. Is, is that particular type. You can't pretend that you don't know what your type is when you know damn well what your type is. You have no excuse for getting involved with someone who isn't your type. Now, all that being said, there are plenty of relationships, plenty of long-term relationships that are decent and solid, uh, where not where there isn't a lot of. Uh, Slam bang uh, sexual fireworks, where there just isn't uh, a really animating uh, erotic passion at the core. What there is is, you know, emotional support, emotional uh, interreliance. There's companionship. There is real love that isn't about sex. Uh, if you can settle for that, you can settle for her. If she can settle for, you know, the sex that you two are having, which I'm guessing I'm betting isn't that great for her either. Uh, you two can stay together. Will you cheat on her at some point in the future if your type should come along? Probably. There are worse things uh, that have happened. You know, if you get 50 years of love and companionship and support out of someone and they had an orgasm uh, inside someone else along the way, I still think you got uh, the better end of the deal. I still think you got a lot out of that relationship even if you were cheated on once or twice. But, you know, that's me. I don't think cheating is that big a deal. Um, But you sound young, And it sounds like it might be a little too soon for you to settle for this. And so I think you should extract yourself and I think you should uh, feel bad and I think you should not date women who aren't this mythical type again because it's cruel.
4: Hey, Dan. This is Chris. Um, I am a 23-year-old gay male. I'm calling from Denver, Colorado, and I was actually calling because um, my boyfriend and I, we've been together for about three years, are going to be getting married in Toronto. And um, on our wedding night, I would really like to um, do something for him that I rarely ever do. Um, I'd like to have anal sex with him. So, um, Strange, I know that being a gay man um, I've never really liked having anal sex. I think it hurts, um, but I really want to do this for my boyfriend he's never pressured me um, to actually do it before he's actually been perfectly happy, um, but I, I would like to do this for him, and I know that he would enjoy it and he's said that he's enjoyed it in previous relationships. My question is um, what can I do to make it not hurt I, I, I'm not really sure if you can just help me out <laughs> if, a, if there's like um, any advice that you can give me on what I can do to make it not hurt all
2: right there are two things I want to say to you first of all uh, congratulations on your impending marriage uh, that's very sweet but you're only 23 years old and marrying at 23 is a stupid fucking thing to do whether you're gay or straight Moving on. Actually, there are three things I want to say. Moving on. How do you make it hurt less? Well, there are some people who just don't ever find anal sex comfortable no matter what they do. You can get a – I want to say epidural. Is that what those are called? Tech savvy at-risk youth. They give them to pregnant women in epidural. I I confuse them with epiladies, which are totally different. Although epidurals are only for ladies, so I think they should call them Um You can't feel anything below the waist and all your leg hair falls out. what you know? So, <laughs> where am I going with this? Uh, some people are never going to be. You know, you can do all the right things. A lot of prep. He can rim you for half an hour. Uh, you can use tons of lube. He can go super duper slowly. Uh, you can have a little hit of pot, um, and it's not going to help. You're st- it's still going to feel uncomfortable. It's still going to quote unquote hurt. Um, A lot of people when they first start experimenting with anal sex, uh, some people, it hurts so bad they never do it again and they just decide it hurts and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You usually do need to give any sort of sex uh, a a few tries before it becomes more comfortable. You know, if we applied the same standard of uh, tried it, it hurt, never did it again to vaginal sex, uh, no woman would ever get fucked twice. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, moving on. um, If you really want to make this – monumental sacrifice. If you really want to put your ass in the air and let your husband fuck it on your wedding night, um, you might just have to bite the pillow and suffer a bit uh, for his pleasure. And what a, you know, what a gift to the Magi that'll be. Now, I, if I were getting married on my wedding night uh, at 23, which is a stupid fucking thing to do. You shouldn't be having a wedding night at 23. You should, you know, if he's the one, he'll still be there when you're 33 and then you should fucking marry him. Um, you. I think it's a bad idea on your wedding night to do something you don't enjoy that's going to make you tense, uh, that may go badly. On your wedding night, you should have sex you like and sex that's going to go like gangbusters. You should do whatever it is you two usually do that you both really get off on. And if you want to like, you know, in the midst of that, you decide you're just so fucking hot and worked up that, you know, anal is what you're going to do. Uh, And you're going to bite the pillow and you're going to cry like a little bitch as he fucks your ass. You should totally do it. You should go for it. But I don't think you should go into it with this, like, I'm going to make this supreme sack. Like, do what you like. Do what you're good at. If you're inspired in the moment, go for it. If you're not, be satisfied with the sex that you enjoy already with this guy you love so much. You're going to enter into a very ill-advised, premature Legal Only in Canada Marriage.
5: Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old lesbian. Uh, My wife and I have been together for about four years, married for two and a half. We've been out to our immediate families for about our entire relationship. But my question is about our extended family. We no longer live, you know, where we grew up. We live about seven hours away now. And when we come home... We still act like, you know, we're just best friends to our extended family. Um, my mother does not want us to come out to my extended family because, you know, I, I come from a very gossipy kind of family. And she says, since I don't live at home, I will I don't have to deal with them. But she does. I, I don't really want to be able to make out in front of my extended family or anything. I just, I don't want to have to feel... Like, my wife is some dirty little secret or anything like that. So what should I do? Should I come out to them anyway? Should I respect my mom's wishes? I I don't know. It's something I've been struggling with for a little while. I am kind of feel like I'm a little beyond the uh, hiding in the closet stage.
2: Ah, what is up with all these married queer 12-year-olds? Stop it. Christ. Um not going to have a double standard here. I don't think straight people should get married in their 20s. I don't think gay people should get married in their 20s. But congratulations to you and the whiff. Now, all you got to say is, sorry, mom. There's something wrong with the family. There's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with you. Uh, there's going to be some fallout. Sorry. Could be worse. I could be, you know, uh, on death row for mass murder. Uh, and anybody that gives you the least bit of grief about it, just give them my phone number and tell them to take it out on me. But your mom can't ask you to stay in the closet the rest of your life because um, – with your extended family because some of them are assholes. Uh, you have a right to be who you are and to be out and the chip should fall where they may now. Your mother uh, may be right. She may get a lot of grief from the relatives as if you know your lesbianism is something she did to you or she's somehow responsible for it or she may be asked to answer for it. Um, and again, at those instances, she just needs to say, you know what? Take it up with her. She's, she has an out. Take it up with her. She's the one eating pussy, not me. Give her a call. Uh, don't be a fucking coward and talk to me about it. Talk to the lesbian about it if you have a problem with it. But what may be going on with your mom is she's embarrassed and ashamed and she is saying something – she's projecting onto her family, onto, onto the rest of your extended family, this uh, you know presumed negative reaction that may or may not come to pass just so she can stay closeted, just so she doesn't have to come out as the mother of a lesbian. Uh, you know, sometimes people do this. They go, you know, I would tell uh, my folks that I'm gay, but they could never handle it. And what the person sometimes is saying is uh – I'm gonna, you know, inflate their homophobia to this point where I get off the hook, where I don't have to come out because oh look at this big scary monster my parents, you know, is are, uh, so I'm off the hook. I don't ever have to do the hard work of coming out. Your mother may be doing the same sort of jujitsu with you. She may be saying oh you know I can handle it and you know I love your wife, but oh your grandparents would. Fucking explode. No, oh, we can never come out to grandma and grandpa or the aunts and uncles or my siblings or, your, or you know, your other your brothers and sisters because, oh, my God, they couldn't handle it. And what she's saying is I don't want to deal with it. I can't handle uh, being out about it. Um, and so I'm going to make the rest of your family sound like these big scary monsters. Um, you know, you say your family is pretty gothic. So maybe it's true that they are the big scary monsters. Uh, but – There are times when you need to give even scary relatives the benefit of the doubt. They can often step up to the plate. It may make them better people. It could open their eyes and ultimately improve everyone's relationships if uh, everyone's being honest and not skulking around.
6: Hey, Ann Savage. This is the girl from the French major drama house. Um, I just listened to the podcast, and everything's been done and happened with. She actually just went back to France um, a couple days ago because we just started finals here. But um, we uh, heard your podcast. A couple of my friends told me about it, and it doesn't surprise me um, that this made it onto your show at all. Um, but just to let you know, he did indeed wait until the night before um, to tell me and my housemates that she was coming, and also o lied and said that she was coming for only a week, um, which was a problem for everybody because uh, we do communal dinners, and he was not going to pay for her dinners at all. Um, so then, what happened was, I tried to find a place to stay for a week, which wouldn't have been that much of a problem, but then I found out from somebody else that she was staying longer, and then with housing because that's against our rules at um our college here um and they got me a new room to live in so now i'm in a single inside of a dorm um, which is pretty nice but i was pretty sad to have to leave uh the house that i was living in because they were had become my family um and so then as i was moving all my stuff out filing had pressed charges against him because uh, it's against the rules and then they had to move me to another place um And uh, he started picking a fight with me and started screaming and yelling at me, saying that I had cheated on him while he was gone. Um, The agreement was that I had originally said that I didn't care if he slept with other people as long as when he came back, he had either decided that he was going to be with me or without me and that if that was so, one of us would move out of the house. Um, and he was the one that decided that we were just not going to sleep with anybody else and then anything else goes. Apparently he forgot this, and while I was fooling around with other guys here, which, I mean, happens, we're at a college, it's part of college life, he found out from other people, even though I told him about it, um, and he didn't believe me. He called me a slut, even though he was the one that fully cheated on me with another girl, even though I had previously given him the okay, and he said that he would never do that to me. He also said uh, when he was in France that he saw no other girls but me at the time when he was cheating on me with another girl. I knew about it the whole time, actually. Um, a friend of mine went to his university and told me, um, but when I asked him, he said he wasn't cheating on me. Um, and then he just stopped talking to me completely, which is not the same thing as breaking up, because it was during his finals, so I assumed he was busy. But now I am out of the house, and I'm finishing up finals, and I'm going back to where I live in Massachusetts, and then I'm going abroad all of next year to France, and he'll graduate by the time I come back, so I won't have to deal with him anymore, but I agree. He's a douchebag, and um, I have no idea if she broke up with him or not, but I hope that she finds someone else better to be with because she doesn't deserve that by any means or ways, and I hope that he learns to not be a coward um, and just break up with the girl, you know, just don't drag it out.
2: Anybody who's curious what that was about is going to have to go back and listen to podcast number 80. Uh, Apparently, um, (laughs) I'll just say that I'm really glad that I didn't study French when I was in college because uh, my love life was complicated enough without all this uh, francophile drama that goes on in the French drama house. Uh, Glad you could get that all off your fucking chest. Uh, Sorry that guy was a douchebag. There are plenty of douchebags out there, but there are lots of nice guys out there too. Um, Some of them don't speak French. Uh, when I was living abroad, I had my affairs uh, with Germans in German, and everything worked out just fine. It was all very clean and neat, um, and orderly, like the Germans. So I really feel that if anybody out there listening is you know going to college next year and trying to you know pick a language to study in a house to move into where that language will be spoken, I go with the crowds. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like the Savage Lovecast. Uh, my buddy Sarah Vowell's books, including Assassination Vacation, are available at Audible.com. And Sarah's Vowell's book, particularly the audio version with Jon Stewart and Conan O'Brien and Dave Eggers, is uh, hilarious. And you should... Downloaded instantaneously. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash savage to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage to get your free audiobook.
7: Uh, hi, Dan. My name is Mike, and I'm a 30 year old gay man in a big, big, big city. Love your podcast and listen to it regularly. I'm calling more with a request uh, than a question as a result of a response you gave to a lesbian. Who always ended her sentences as if they were questions and had lots of mama drama in her relationships. Um, You had said to her that you believed uh, when you meet someone who is gay that they are, quote, damaged goods, unquote, until they prove otherwise. Now, I, you know, growing up in southeastern Pennsylvania during the 70s and 80s, uh, when the AIDS epidemic and the uh, Holocaust of AIDS was real big in the news, witnessed all kinds of homophobia and all kinds of um, hate and hate-based kind of communication and whatnot. Um, so, you know, I cannot deny that there was a great deal of anxiety growing up that may have made me adjust, you know, my personality. However, I think I emerged from that, and I think most gay people have emerged from that in my generation, um, relatively stable. And to classify an entire group of people as damaged gold is irresponsible. So I believe, I have faith, that what you said was hyperbolic and that harsh, it was harsher than you expected it to be. And so I'm calling to ask, beg, for you dan please to clarify what you meant um and you know hopefully to soften it
2: hyperbolic uh sorry i'm not going to take it back um but i will soften it but i'm certainly not going to take it back uh when you look at self-destructive behaviors tied to sex uh gay men are more self-destructive uh Potentially because it's easier for gay men to be self-destructive around sex because we have sex with men and men are pigs. Uh, it's easier for us to find sex than it is for uh, men who want to sleep with women to find sex. But, you know, suicide rates are higher among gay men. Uh, rates of smoking, which is hysterically, uh, irrationally self-destructive behavior, uh, higher. Uh, drug uses are higher. STI rates are higher. uh there is a streak of self loathing and self destructiveness uh, that cuts a broad swath through the gay male community. Uh, gay men don't raise themselves. Gay men didn't, uh, you know, gay men are uh, everywhere throughout the Catholic Church, but we didn't script the Catholic dogma, apparently. Uh, and gay men don't torture themselves when they're kids. Um, growing up uh, in homophobic households that can instill in a person um, a desire to self-destruction because you're taught that you are worthy of self-destruction or worthy of destruction and nothing else. Going to hell and you know your family's going to hate you and God hates you and the president hates you and you can't get married and you're a threat to the family. Waka waka waka. That is a real impact on a lot of gay men, and they eh, take it out on themselves, uh, particularly when they're younger. I think particularly in their twenties. And if you're sleeping with them, they're going to take it out on you too, potentially. If you're in a relationship with a gay man who hates himself for being gay, who's he going to hate more than the person he's having all that gay sex with? A person that he can shift responsibility uh, for his gayness to subconsciously, I believe, and then punish you. So I actually believe that so many gay men are damaged goods, not of their own accord. It's not like little gay kids go, I think I'll damage myself by... Being born into a family of Southern Baptist whack jobs. But so many are that when you enter into a relationship, when you're gay and you meet somebody who's gay, you can't give them the benefit of a doubt. You can't say they're gay like me and gay is good. And they're my you know gay brothers and lesbian sisters. And let's all gather under the rainbow windsock. It doesn't work that way. You have to be a little bit wary. You have to go, huh, gay like me. No benefit of the doubt because could be an asshole could be an abuser could be a motherfucker could be wrestling with issues of self-hatred and self-destructive impulses that could harm me too and you know what straight people should probably say that to themselves when they get involved particularly straight women who get involved with straight men You know, every time you open the paper and somebody's romantic partner has been murdered it's almost never uh the wife who murdered the husband or the girlfriend who murdered the boyfriend so women who get involved with men have to be on the Look out for the red flags of abuse, and that's bandied about. People talk about that at professional advice bloviators like me and uh, Abigail Van Buren and Oprah Winfrey and uh, Miss Manners. We talk about it all the time. Be on the lookout for the red flags of abuse. You know, gay men need to be on the lookout for the red flags of self-hatred, and I think one of the ways that you can be on the lookout is to keep your guard up, not give a guy a benefit of the doubt, and assume just at the get-go that they are damaged goods or potential damage goods, damaged goods goods, because potentially they are. And I don't think you have to set the bar impossibly high. They don't need to prove to you over 14 decades that they are not damaged goods before you lower your guard and accept that potentially they are not or their damage is so minimal that you, you can deal with it, live with it, lessen it. But when you get, enter into a relationship when you're gay, you need to be on your guard against the destructive – Ripples of, of internalized homophobia, just like a woman entering into a relationship with a straight man needs to be on her guard against uh, male violence, male abusive uh, behavior patterns. And I'm not going to take it back and I'm not really going to soften it because I see too many young people, particularly young gay people, who think that once they're out of the closet and once they're out of high school, their problems are over, that they're going to get into the big, fat, fucking gay, quote unquote, community, hang out with their gay brothers and nothing can harm them then. And really, you know what? Getting out of high school, getting away from the cliques and the bigots and the homophobes and getting out of your parents' church and getting into the gay scene and starting to date, you know what? That's not the end of all your troubles. That is the beginning of an entirely different set.
8: Uh, Hey, Dan. My name is Kathy. Um, I really need you to save my sex life and save my relationship. I am a 37-year-old female uh, with cerebral palsy. And which causes difficulty in the you know the mechanics of of vaginal intercourse, which yeah, I know a gay advice columnist, you know all about vaginal intercourse, but you you are just really awesome, and I know you and I have faith that you can help me um I'm in a a fairly new relationship, like I said, even though i'm thirty seven i've I've only actually had successful Uh, vaginal intercourse like two or three times in my life early on um, when I was a little bit more flexible. And since then, it's been a problem of trying to find a position that works and me having anxiety because of past pain and discomfort and difficulty with positions, which of course becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then um, just just a a vicious cycle same every time by the time we get into a position that works guy loses the erection like I said I am in the this new relationship after having gone out for three months we finally went all tried to go all the way for the first time and it was just an absolute um disaster and I know that I'm building it up in my mind and making it worse um But I don't know how to, like, not think about the pink elephant in the room and just, like, let it happen and chill out about it. Um, I totally need your help, Dan.
2: I know a hell of a lot about vaginal intercourse. I don't know what you're talking about. I've had vaginal intercourse with women who had vaginas and everything. And I put my penis in their vaginals and left it there until I had orgasms vaginally myself just sounds terribly, terribly hot. But I do know very, very little about cerebral palsy and the particular issues that may confront someone around positions and discomfort and pain and fear when it comes to disability. So I've actually got a guest expert on the line for you, uh, Corey Silverberg, co-author of the recently re-released The Ultimate Guide to Sex and Disability, uh, which is out now from Cleese Press. It's an excellent book, and uh, Corey's joining us uh, from Toronto, where he is a Toronto-based Canadian.
1: Hey, Corey. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Uh,
2: Good. Let's let's just get right to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, This woman has cerebral palsy. It sounds like she's had it for a while. It's progressive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she is having difficulties with the mechanics. What would your advice be to her about vaginal intercourse and making it happen? What's your advice generally for for people with cerebral palsy?
1: Well, I mean, you know, the the weird thing is the thing about her call that made me think about it is in some ways, like, fucking when you have pain or chronic pain is kind of like fucking when you're a porn star, in that if you know anything about how porn works, and I know I know you know this, um, you have to start and stop all the time, right? You have to stop, and they reposition the camera, and you have to constantly keep an erection or keep aroused, and if you, if you want to be good at it, then you, you, know, you have to kind of be in that moment. And that's, I mean, sort of when she's talking about about the stresses of it, that's often one of the problems, is that when you have pain, even if you're not feeling it during the intercourse, you're always a little bit afraid you're going to. And what people, sort of all of us who live with, and I, I have a sort of a form of debilitating pain I deal with sometimes, so I know this personally, one of the rules we have to have when we have sex is with our partners is that we're allowed to stop at any time and change positions, and it doesn't mean we want to stop having sex. It just means it's not, you know, what we're doing now isn't working exactly right.
2: Yeah, she did um, say something that always leaps out at me. Yeah. She's afraid the guy will lose the erection, lose the right. erection. And I actually, that comes up a lot of times with people, people without disabilities. I hate that phrase. because you yeah. talk about the erection like it's, uh, I don't know, a
1: cloud, and it can just blow away, and you can't do anything <laughs> about bringing it back. Exactly. And, know, and, like, it's, it's this, that magical thing that has to be there every moment of the sex for so the that sex true. to be good. Too. But, yeah. you know, if
2: people who say, I lost my erection and it's over, you know what? You put your right hand around your dick. Right. Somebody
1: talks dirty to you for a second, you stroke yourself in your erection. you there again. Yeah, and so some of the technical suggestions I'd have is, I mean, one thing that helps with that, if he's not, you know, some guys aren't going to be, you know, super comfortable masturbating or touching themselves in front of their partner, having a vibrator is really good. Um, she probably has already tried this, but a big thing around positioning is pillows, right? That, that, you know, so maybe having a lot of pillows under her hips, having her be sort of f- flat on her stomach, that might work. For for her, for everyone, it's different. Um, there's, that, there's this company, Liberator Shapes, that make these pillows that are really good. They're really expensive, but they're really good. Um, the other big thing that comes to mind is, is for her to start masturbating more if she's doing it already or some if she's not doing it at all. Because the thing is, you know, you know we habituate our sort of sexual patterns so easily, right? We just get into this mindset of this is what it's going to be like. And for her, her to have good sex that leads to orgasms on her own first is probably going to help with a partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And also you can masturbate with a partner.
2: Like it's like she's attaching a lot of importance. As well she should, she has a right to, if vaginal intercourse is really important to her. Yeah. But you can be sexual with someone without having to initiate intercourse, or if you initiate intercourse, complete it. And it's still, right. it can still be a worthwhile sexual experience. There can still be orgasms and intimacy and love and tenderness. <laughs> you have to, I don't want to say bail, but move on to something else that's less taxing.
1: That's right, yeah. But I do appreciate what you're saying. The thing is, you know, there is this tendency, uh, particularly, like, for a group of sort of uh, people to say, like, oh, you know, you don't need vaginal intercourse. And people who live with chronic pain, things like vaginismus and things like disabilities, they get pretty pissed off when you say stuff like that. And I'm glad you're not saying that because, as you're saying, if you want it, you have a right to want it. But it might mean doing more than just that. And, of course, the bottom line is if you do more than just vaginal intercourse, you'll probably be happier. Can you hang
2: out with us for a little bit? We have other calls that I think you could knock out of the park here like get to that one. Of course, yeah. Okay, well, let's, do, uh, let's move on. Here we go.
1: Hi, Dan.
0: I have sort of a complicated question. Um, gay, straight, bisexual, whatever, I am first and foremost a masochist and have been for years. I'm in a very happy BDSM relationship that has been immensely satisfying both personally and sexually. However... About a year and a half ago, and for a variety of very boring reasons, I got very sick, had major surgery, the works. There were complications with my recovery, and to top it off, I've suffered some neural damage and now have epilepsy. Nevertheless, I am just now starting to feel better, and my problem is that after all of this ridiculous bullshit, I am seriously gun-shy about mixing sex and pain, which is very distressing, not only for my partner, but for me, because it was something I genuinely enjoyed and remains the focus of all of my fantasies. My partner has been very, very supportive, but I can tell this new and exciting little phobia has the potential to seriously damage our relationship, and I don't know what to do. I want to need to actually but after being sick and in pain for a year and a half i freeze up entirely during a scene and i can't go through with it should i just suck it up until i get over it do i need therapy i don't know what to do
1: a masochist with Epilepsy. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I love this, and I love you for putting this call in the air because, of course, people tend to think that people with disabilities have either no sex or the boringest sex in the world. And I know lots of people with disabilities that are into BDSM and that are into polyamory, and so this is not an unusual—it's not an unusual question that I get. Actually, um, the first two things that come to mind that I want her to know, and she may know this already, is that orgasms can trigger seizures. Um, it happens. It's not the end of the world. It's not life-threatening. Most people I know. Epilepsy, just get used to it. Some of them make jokes about it. But it can happen. And so if she's afraid that it can happen, she should know it can and that, and that she'll survive it and that the orgasm is probably worth it.
2: But knowing that, it wouldn't – I mean, if she was restrained, if they were doing bondage, that's part of BDSM. <laughs> right. If they are doing bondage and she had a seizure, could that be potentially –
1: could yeah she yeah, I mean they'd have to be careful about the about the kind of bondage right so if she were you know kind of wrapped up in some fetal position and she had a seizure that could be quite dangerous whereas if she's in light bondage and there's some movement and she's lying on a bed that, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem depends on the sort of intensity of the seizures um, but
2: the, I would say I mean I don't think people always have to be on the safe side I think people have a right to take risks people right snowboard you and know. skydive and you can have some risk <laughs> in your sex life it doesn't make you a bad person exactly in this instance would you want to err on the side of you know as much bondage as you like up until, you know, you're getting closer to – you know, climax or orgasm that you gradually, you know, a lot of people who are into BDSM do that anyway, where the bonding mm-hmm. tends to be a lot about foreplay and then it sort of falls away. Right. Does she want to err on the side of not being tied up at orgasm? Uh,
1: you know, maybe. I mean, I'm with you about the risk, so I would say that, I mean, she sounds like someone who's, I mean, she was a fairly experienced bottom. Um, so the thing is, though, the other thing I want to say about sort of her thing is, like, is, you know, when you acquire a disability, to some extent, you know, it, your body's the same, but it also has changed completely. And she, she may need to relearn. Sort of her limits in terms of pain, and also what turns her on. I mean, there's actually kind of a weird relationship between disability and desire that we don't fully understand. And some of the things that worked for her before might not anymore. So, you it, know,
2: it seems like we haven't gotten to her specific issue though. She said she's a masochist. Right. Can can pain? You said orgasm can induce a seizure. Can the infliction of you know erotic pain induce a seizure? Well,
1: if it induces orgasm, it can. But uh, unto itself, I mean, there's no there's, there's sort of no there's no research that sort of says the feeling turned on induces a seizure. It's more, it's, you know, it's intensity. I mean, a lot of anger can induce seizures, and an orgasm can. Um, but, you know, the other thing is, I mean, I guess my thing is she said she freezes up. So really the questions are, you know, what is that What is that for her? What's freezing her up? And she said, should I see a therapist? And I would say... If she Find kind of a, a BDSM friendly therapist, um, then that would be a good thing to do. Just, I mean, even, you know, maybe one session, maybe five sessions, but to be able to talk out what's actually going on for her when she, as she says, freezes up. Because that, that's not one thing,
2: it Sounds right? like as a new epileptic, she's really afraid of inducing a seizure because seizures are still new for her, yeah, perhaps, and, yeah. and, and, you know, terrifying.
1: And, and what I'd want to suggest is, you know, she should just she should do a Google search on the question do orgasms and do seizures? And there's a couple really great uh, forms. Forums that I can't, I don't have on the top of my head right now, where people with epilepsy talk about this. And they talk about it with such kind of humor and fear. And, you know, I mean, I, I think she could find some sort of some answers from people who are living with epilepsy that she'd pro- probably feel better about. Yeah, and getting back to the pain issue specifically
2: yeah. e- extreme pain mm-hmm. may induce a seizure because of the, you know, the endorphins or the rush or right. whatever. But perhaps if they experiment with some like low level baby steps, training wheels pain,
1: yeah. that won't be such a problem. Yeah, yeah, using training wheels, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, she needs to – I mean, it's the same thing as before she had epilepsy in terms of learning how to ramp up and ramp down. And it is – I mean, it's what you're saying. I mean, I think that what they need to do is almost sort of start from scratch and start from – we're going to start really slow and start with very light light play – and obviously, whenever she says we need to take a break, then they take a break. Um, but there's no way that having epilepsy is going to preclude her from doing this again. She doesn't, she doesn't need to. I mean, she said that, do I have to give it up? Or, oh, the other thing is she said, do I have to, like, suck it up? And I don't think she does that. Because once you ignore your body, you're, you're putting yourself in risk. She needs to be – she needs to stop when she feels like she needs to stop, whether that's because of anxiety or physical pain.
2: Okay. Let's take this last question. Okay. Thanks very much for hanging out with us. Just one second. Oh, Here's the last pleasure. one. Okay.
9: I'm looking at 36. I'll be turning that this summer, and I'd really like to date. It would be really nice. Um, But there's complications, which I suspect are the reason I'm not dating. Um, I'm disabled in three different ways. I'm blind. I have a chronic illness that's kind of like having the flu, um, which means I have about I don't know, a third of the energy of most people. And I was born with some facial birth defects. I've had some reconstructive surgery. I still don't look like everybody else. I don't have a problem with how I look, but I'm very clear that large chunks of the rest of the world does. Um, I have tried online dating websites, A traditional one, one geared towards smart people, one that was specifically for disabled people, no luck. My friends don't seem to be able to um, find people to set me up with. That might possibly be because they have their own dating problems, but theirs are a lot have to do with, well, problems I don't have. Um... I don't know what to do. I'm completely stuck. I'm smart. I'm funny. I have things to say. I just can't seem to get to a point where any of that is going to matter. Um, I know part of the problem is that when somebody looks at me, they either don't think of me as somebody datable. Um, either because it never enters their heads or because they're turned off by my appearance or they get freaked out by the idea of dating somebody who's blind. Um, I have been in relationships in the past. So the last one um, was for about three and a half years. It ended about six years ago. None of the people I've dated have ever come into my life through any method that can be repeated. It's all been coincidence, accidental sorts of things. Um, If you have any ideas whatsoever, I would really love to hear them because you seem to be a straight shooter and you seem to have some um, unusual takes on situations, unusual enough that maybe, just maybe, you could help. Sometimes listening
2: to the calls and reading the mail just makes me want to hang myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Is that a reaction I'm not allowed to have when we're talking about disability?
1: Well, but why why do
2: you want to hang yourself? Well, it just it, she says I'm a straight shooter, and I'm mm-hmm. afraid to uh, give her my straight shot because I think it's not going to be what she wants to hear. Well,
1: what is your? I'm actually interested. What is your straight shot? Well, if you don't mind. Okay, you interview me. <laughs> she <laughs> says that
2: you know she's had relationships in the past, which I mm-hmm. would take as an indication that she could have a relationship in the future, mm-hmm. and that she's met these people through coincidence and accident, which is how most people meet people. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's an accident. Uh, you know, Now we have you know the internet, but even that's an accident because somebody has to stumble across your profile. It's not like you put up your profile on a dating website and it automatically is downloaded to the heads of everyone who could potentially date you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, somebody you're compatible with has to actually show up, uh, join that website too, and see you. However, you know, and this is a thing you're not allowed to say, and I've said this to people with disabilities or without disabilities in the past. Sometimes there are no good or comforting answers. Some people are alone Mm -hmm. all their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can encourage people, you know, to stay out there, to stay in the game, to keep looking, and sometimes you're encouraging people to just rub salt in their wounds.
1: Right, right. Sometimes
2: people need to accept. The you know the possibility, not the certainty, mm-hmm. that they will be alone mm-hmm. and figure out how to build a life for themselves as a single person mm-hmm. that has pleasure and people in it and is rewarding, mm-hmm. without over focusing on. You know, and a te- you know, deciding that they must be miserable because they're alone, because they're single, right. because they don't have a sex partner. Right. And not having a sex partner does not mean you can't have sex. A lot of people don't have sex partners and they still have, uh, they still are able to be, express themselves sexually. solo. Right. And I don't think that that's what she wants to hear, but that's
1: my straight shot. Now what's yours? Well, I think that that's great. I mean, you know, I mean, my straight shot is that plus. Like, yes, you know, what she's experiencing, the, the difference between, say, me, who was single for 10 years, and her is that when I walk out on the street, people aren't, to be frank, repulsed by, my, by, by the way I look. They're not immediately turned, I mean, maybe they are, but, you know, they aren't, they don't treat me different because I kind of pass as normal. So, you know, th- so the thing is that, I mean, what people with disabilities, the problem is, is that mostly they get that bullshit that you, you know, that you talked about early, right? They get, you know, get on out there, just try again. It's all you. You know, Barbara Waxman, who was a great disability activist she used to talk about the fact that sexuality is the source of the greatest oppression for people with disabilities because it's so easy if you have a disability to convince yourself that when it comes to sex i'm not getting laid because of something to do with me right when it comes to going on a bus if i if i use a wheelchair i know that i'm i'm excluded because you know those bastards you know the fuckers won't make the make the bus accessible when it comes to the fact that i won't get a date i can always tell myself well maybe it is that i'm just a loser maybe it is that i'm just not this enough or that enough and that's not true this is sort of the difference. The fact is, you know, you've got to think about disability. Disability and sex, disability and socialization is kind of where, you know, gays were in the 50s, right, in terms of their social rights and in terms of their social power. Mm-hmm. So when you live with a visible disability, um, it does make a difference. At the same time, you know, when I'm working with people, I say exactly what you say. The fact is that they you know, that, that you, can, you, know, you can keep getting shot down. And so it's about building up social support. Now, the thing I would want to say with, with her was, is that there may be other, you know, there may be tangential things she can do. So if she isn't really working on having a great group of friends, although I think she said that she does, mm-hmm. but if she wasn't, then that would be where I would say, like, like, what can you do about that? Can you go out and join sort of a social group that, you know, has a similar interest to you where you might meet people with similar interests? Um, she, the other thing, and it's sort of, Carries on what you were saying is, you know, she said that that uh, that you know that it's just not that she's had no luck, and I want to know in online dating does that mean that she's hasn't met anyone that clicks for her? Are people interested in her and she's not interested in them? You know, the other thing we can do, which you're not doing, which is why I think your response was great, is we make it all about the disability. Of course they're lonely because they're disabled. Of course they can't get a date because they have a disability. Maybe. It's that, you know, she has some really bad conversational habit where she's very aggressive and that turns people off, or maybe it's something else. So we need to be careful both to acknowledge the fact that when you live with a visible disability, that is living with difference. You don't get treated the same. And your disability isn't everything that you are. And that, and that the reasons you may be alone... you have romantic troubles that have nothing to do with your disability. Exactly, yeah. So, but, you know, and I mean, the thing is, I mean, my first reaction to your thing about hanging yourself is, at first I was nervous because I thought where you were going was around Pity uh, and that's not appropriate right People with disabilities they don't want your pity you know their 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 call is piss on pity well, they can't have my pity because I don't actually give pity to anybody <laughs> have nobody, pity. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect, because that's not what they want, but they do want your understanding, and uh, this is now becoming an advertisement for you, but I think they get it, so... Well, I do.
2: I appreciate that, the, you know, there are different... I, I want to back up something you said with an example from Gayland, which is my favorite rhetorical tick. Okay. You know, I had an a African-American friend um, in Seattle, uh, still do, who went off on me once about how white guys won't date him and white guys are racists, and he's having no luck... Um, Romantically, and it was because of his race. And <clears throat> I looked at him and just thought, you know what? I'm gonna risk this friendship. But I said, no, it's because you're an asshole. <laughs> because you, when you meet guys, you right. treat them like shit, and right. you're an right. asshole to people. Right. And that is your problem romantically. I'm sure there's some guys out there who don't want to date you because you're black. Right. And fuck them. Right. But. There are guys out there who, do, who would perhaps
1: want to date you if you weren't an asshole. It's a perfect analogy. And, and we also need to acknowledge that, you know, some of the, the problem is that some of the things that come with disability, like living with chronic pain and fatigue, can actually make us seem like assholes when we're not. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's one of the ways that people with disabilities get screwed, not literally, um, is that, you know, I mean, I have a lot of friends, because I've a lot of people in my life have disabilities, and a lot of friends don't, my friends without disabilities are often like, what the fuck is up with so-and-so? They always seem to be sneering, and I'm like, well, it's because their back is always killing them. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so I know that, and I know what the sneer means, but that, again, obviously makes the superficial kind of parts of dating more difficult.
2: Okay, well, we have you on the phone, moving on to another topic. Sure. Uh Sure just because I know people will want me to ask you about this and I'm sure people are thinking it, people who are disabled, people with cerebral palsy, people who are missing limbs, Mm -hmm. um, dating people who are currently able-bodied, currently Mm -hmm. without disability, because, you know, a truck could hit us all, we could all be disabled tomorrow. That's right. Um, How prevalent is that? And how much of a concern is it for people who are disabled that they, you know, when
1: they're dating someone, frankly, who fetishizes their disability? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no good research that I can tell you on this, and so all I'm going to do is, anecdotal, is tell you anecdotally, it's very prevalent. I mean I, I mean, I would say it's about half and half, about half, you know, half the people that I interact with and half the people I know that have disabilities are the ones that are in relationships, relationships are in relationships with people who are non-disabled, and half are in relationships with people who and are, people disabled. are disabled. people who
2: are disabled, do they rule out as potential romantic partners people who fetishize their disabilities?
1: No, not at all. So, we're talking about here devotees is kind of the the official term um, for some of these people, and uh, you know, there's some great groups uh, where it's people with disabilities that started the groups, Um, and you know, the thing about the, I mean, it's two things. The thing about people, not so many people just fetishize disability. A lot of people see it, feel it, as a sexual preference. They are drawn emotionally and sexually to people that are disabled. Now, why that is, and whether or not that's okay. It's beyond me to answer. But, a lot, but I mean, I have friends that are in relationships with, with people who I would either be called devotees or disability fetishists, and they're great relationships because these are people who are loving and kind and sexy and interested in sex, and, and it was the disability that got them together, but it was the personalities that kept them together. So, you know, at the same time, some people with disabilities consider it sick and then the other thing is that you know when I, whenever I write about this online I get tons of emails from people with disabilities who say I've never even heard of this because of course the normal experience when you're disabled is that nobody's as sexually interested in you at all so they think this is kind of a bit bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, the internet has been, been a big boon to this both, both for you know people who are devotees because they're finding you know friends and people to support them and then as a way for people with disabilities to hook up with them and you know I mean Kath Duncan is an Australian radio journalist and she did a Great 16-part series on this, and she's a double amputee, I think. Um, and it's interesting. There's no simple answers, but you know, I think that if you're interested in people's disabilities, uh, get out there. If, if it's if it's just a specific fetish, make sure you're you're upfront about that, and maybe you'll get some great hot casual sex. Um, uh, yeah, and everyone will be the better for it. Exactly. But
2: you have to. I mean, my response to people who have who are devotees is always, I think it's fine so long as you aren't treating that person as a stump. Exactly. So as long as you can appreciate what they bring to the table physically that arouses you, but you also interact with them as a human being and you don't treat them like an object, except when you're treating them like an object. You know, my boyfriend treats me like a human being and like an object, too. Exactly. Everybody wants to be an object and a human being. In That's their right. Relationship <laughs> time and, time. and if you can do that, it should be fine. But I've heard from a lot of uh, people with disabilities that they, and maybe these are just the ones who would write to complain, that yeah. they resent greatly being...
1: You know what Yeah, I mean and, and they have obviously a right to that. But first of all, my experience of most devotees is it isn't just about the stump, right? That it that it is some kind that there's an emotional component to this interaction and they want to get to know people. The other thing is that the classic story disability story about second wave feminism is that second wave feminists when they sort of start getting up you know up in arms about like cat calls and being objectified, women with disabilities were like, This is a perfect example of how we're excluded from your group. I would love to get cat calls. I would love to be objectified, that's all I want. <laughs> And, and honestly, like, you know, I don't know if it was Gloria Steinem, but, you know, women of that generation were horrified. What do you mean you want to be objectified? So, you know, everyone has the right to, you know, as you said, I mean, everyone, everyone wants to be treated as an object sometimes.
2: I am not just a person. I am also a piece of meat. Exactly. Hey, Corey, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's totally my pleasure. Uh, that was Corey Silverberg, co-author of the recently re-released book, The Ultimate Guide to Sex and Disability, from Cleese Press. Thanks again, Corey. Thank you. All right. That wraps up this week's podcast. Thanks, everybody. The phone number here, if you'd like to record a question for a future podcast, 206-201-2720. Please try to keep your call under two minutes and leave us a phone number so we can call you back if we need to. Promise not to broadcast your phone number and you download the podcast every week at thestranger.com slash savage. And I blog every day at thestranger.com's blog slog. Thanks very much, everybody. We'll be back at you next week.